Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. The following podcast was recorded just hours before House Republicans released the American Health Care Act, their replacement for the Affordable Care Act. For full coverage of what the bill entails, please visit AJMC.com. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care, and we're going to do our podcast today on a really interesting and timely topic, and that is the Republican uh, ACA Repeal and Replace Bill, which has been um, really uh, been worked on kind of secret recently, um, prompting Rand Paul to go on a search for it, um, but we're learning now that it should be revealed to everybody any minute now, sometime uh, today, tomorrow, the next day, who knows? So we've invited Nathan Bays, who's a general counsel and executive director of the Health Management Academy, which is both a consultancy and a, and a think tank and more, located in Washington, D.C. And I've heard him speak on the topic of repeal and replace, so I think we're going to have a really fun conversation. So welcome, Nathan. Thank you, Pat. I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to be here today, and uh, hopefully it will be fun, and, and I will, uh, I'll try not to, to hide my thoughts with Republicans and hiding their bill, right? <laughs> okay, well, that would be good. I have trouble kind of hiding my, my biases as, as well. So um, let's start out with this. Uh, there have been some, some leaked drafts of the House repeal and replace bill. Um, can you let us know in broad terms, what do you think we're going to find in this bill when we finally see it? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, as you referenced there, you know, there is no official bill that's been released. I mean, today is, uh, is, is March 6th, and I think the consensus is that Republicans will release publicly a draft of their, uh, of the legislation that they intend to use to, to both repeal uh, through reconciliation and replace pieces of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, there, there are a couple of things, though, even though we don't know what will ultimately be in it, I think there are a couple of things given, uh, as you referenced, both earlier versions that have been leaked and then just conceptual principles that Republicans stand for, both Republicans in the House and the Senate, uh, HHS Secretary Tom Price, and, and things you've heard President Trump reference in his speeches. I think you will see first um, on the individual market, as opposed to, to the way that that market works now, with premium subsidies through the exchanges that the Affordable Care Act created, I think you're likely to see a transition to advanceable refundable tax credits that individuals can use to purchase coverage. There's been a lot of back and forth uh, amongst Republicans about how much should these tax credits be. Um, certainly, Republicans think they should increase with age, but there's also been questions about should there be income uh, kind of uh, requirements, or not income requirements, I should say, but kind of uh, income Based on your income, should you receive more or less of a subsidy? Um, so I think you'll see the advanceable refundable tax credits included in, in the Republican legislation. I do think you will see um, changes to Medicaid. And I think that what, what we've seen in the leaked drafts, but also what is, what's been seen in the leaked drafts, in the leaked drafts is also um, very similar to what Republicans have proposed over the last few years, which is a transition to either per capita uh, allotments, which is referred to as per capita caps or Medicaid block grants. So the the initial version of the, there have been several leaked versions of the Republican bill, but the first one that was leaked had a, a per capita caps transition with the option for states to take the block grant or receive a block grant of funding. 
and, and the expansion, the Medicaid expansion that was created by the Affordable Care Act, um, not going away necessarily, but the federal match going away. So if you'll recall, the, the Medicaid expansion, which took Medicaid up to 138% of the federal poverty level in the ACA, that had, for the first few years of the program, the first three years, 100% of that additional money was paid by the federal government. Then it went on a sliding scale down to 90%, where 90% of the dollars were federal, states had to come up to 10%. So I think what you'll see is that that 90-10 matching will go away at some point in the future, whether that's two years, three years, four years down the road. The 90-10 matching will go away. The, the expansion, so to speak, will stay, but, but states will have to come up with a lot more money if they want to provide coverage to those up to 138% of the federal poverty level. The other thing that I think you're, you're very likely to see um, proactively are state innovation grants. So an allocation of money that will go to states to create things like high-risk pools, to do interesting things with, with uh, benefit design um, in programs such as Medicaid. So I think you're likely to see that. And then the final thing is obviously, I think who knows whether you'll see all um, taxes and mandates from the Affordable Care Act repeal, but I think it's likely you will see most if not all, taxes and mandates from the Affordable Care Act repealed. So everything from the individual mandate and employer mandate on, on uh, insurance to things, various taxes that are associated um, and were parts of the legislation. So that's a lot, and I think there will be a lot more than what I just talked through. Uh, but I think changes to Medicaid, advanceable refundable tax credits for the individual market to replace kind of the exchanges and, and premium subsidies that exist today, state innovation grants, and then a repeal of, of many of the mandates and taxes. Well, that, that's a great overview. So, um, and uh, let's dive into a, a little further into each one of those, because there's a lot buried in there. And I think if, um, if, if people are going to be able to understand and communicate with their legislators about um, whatever the final replacement bill uh, comes uh, comes to pass, um, they really need to understand these pretty complex, wonky um, things um, that we just talked about. So the first one really is the switch from subsidies to tax credits, and how how are they really different? Um, under the ACA, we call it a subsidy, and under uh, the repeal and replace proposal, it's this. Uh, Advance, advanceable tax credit. What, what really is the difference between those two things? Well, it's, it's a great question. And, um, and, and I'll caveat my answer with the fact that we, we don't know, you know, kind of because Republicans haven't released a final version of their plan, which and even after they do that will be subject to amendment and modification both in the House and the Senate. We don't know exactly how the final um, advanceable refundable tax credits will look, but conceptually, I would argue that they're not substantially different. Um, the premium subsidies are, are kind of direct payments through the exchanges that kind of bypass the individual. So when you purchase coverage in, in, in one of the, in the ACA marketplace exchanges, you paid and you were, you're essentially responsible for the subsidized plan. Um, the subsidized cost of the plan. The advanceable refundable tax credits would be a way for individuals to receive these credits based on their age and income, uh, and they would be advanceable. Um, so essentially, you could use the, these, these credits, in theory, that you would receive to pay or to help offset your monthly premium costs. 
but it's it's the primary difference is that it puts the individual back in uh, with so to speak skin in the game, and I think that that functionally what both a premium subsidy and an advanceable refundable tax credit do is the same thing. It lowers the cost that an individual it subsidizes or lowers the cost that an individual has to pay for coverage. The difference, or at least in, in my opinion, the primary difference between the two is that in the advanceable refundable tax credit space, you put the individual back and give the individual skin in the game. The individual is making choices. The individual has responsibility for purchasing coverage, for using this advanceable refundable tax credit. So it, it creates an enhanced degree of individual responsibility. Um, depending on your politics, one might argue that's both, that is either good or bad. And I think that that's, depends on your political ideology. But at the end of the day, conceptually, what a premium subsidy and an, and the, an advanceable refundable tax credit both do is they lower the cost that an individual would pay to purchase coverage vis-a-vis what it would otherwise be. Um, so I think conceptually, they're going after, they're trying to reach the same outcome, Pat, uh, but but based on your political ideology, um, one or the other may be favorable, certainly for Republicans, having that enhanced degree of individual responsibility is favorable. That's the, well, let, me put, let me push back a little bit here, because with the subsidy, the premium is paid. And, and by the way, the ACA, we haven't talked about this uh, yet, but the ACA also provided some protection for low-income people for the huge out-of-pocket costs that a lot of the marketplace plans um, have built into them, you know, with the high deductibles and using um, co-insurance instead of co-pays and, and, and things like that. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is um, Kaiser Family Foundation released a very interesting interactive map today. And, and again, it's, it's based on the speculation that the tax credit's going to be based only on age, which is what we've heard so far in the Republican proposal, as opposed to the subsidies, which took into account your income, your location where you're insured, because some areas have really expensive um, premiums and others have less expensive uh, premiums and age. And you can actually go to the Kaiser Family Foundation website and look at this map and, and uh, play with uh, the income of the individual and the age of the individual and get an idea of, of what the impact is going to be. And when I did that today, well, what I found was if um, this, the way the formula will work, if it's only based on age, is it's going to help a lot more high-income people buy insurance, and it's going to help fewer low-income people buy insurance. Why would we want to give relief to the to the rich and not help low-income people get insurance? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. Can you can you help me with this? Yeah, well, I I don't know if I can if I can help you with that specific question because I agree that 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 I don't think that 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 makes sense. And in fact, um, what you've seen over the last um, week, but more acutely in the last couple of days, you've actually seen um, folks. From, from the right wing of the Republican Party make exactly the point that you've made, uh, Pat, which is that if there's not some type of income-based uh, qualifier, what you do is you could end up giving people who are very, very wealthy uh, a tax credit. Uh, there's a, a Republican, I grew up in a, a relatively small town in Tennessee, and I just happened to be looking at, at uh, over the weekend, my hometown newspaper, and the, the member of Congress who's from my the district where I grew up is a Republican and he's a physician. And there was a comment 
from him uh, in the paper about how he supports adding an income qualifier to the credit because he said, I don't think I, I should be receiving, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, but he said, I think I've done well enough in life that I shouldn't be receiving a tax credit to purchase insurance. Um, so I think that you make a really good point. I think, you know, the interesting thing is I think that, um, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of um, outside of, of um, you know, kind of the, the health policy and, and political realm think that this is very clearly, that everything we're talking about is partisan, which is Democrats, you know, dislike all of it and Republicans like everything. But there's actually a lot of disagreement even amongst the, amongst the Republican parties making, within the party, I should say, making the point that you just made now. So, I, I, you know, I don't think, I don't have an answer to your question. All I would say is that I think that the way that you're thinking about it in the Kaiser, the way the Kaiser Family Foundation, which I haven't, I haven't played with those, those maps like you have, but I think there's certainly people on the Republican side that acknowledge that as well, that it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to give wealthy people tax credits to purchase insurance. And what about, uh, what about subsidizing the out-of-pocket cost? Do you think we're likely or unlikely to see that? I, I haven't in any of the stories that I've read about the um, plan that's about to be released. I haven't actually seen that mentioned. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I think if I had to guess, just being a guess, I think it's, it's unlikely that out-of-pocket costs will be subsidized, if at all, certainly to the extent that they've been subsidized under the Affordable Care Act. I think that, you know, um, I mean, who knows? Again, caveating, we're, you know, we're predicting into the future, and that's, that's always risky to do. But I would say that it's unlikely that out-of-pocket costs will be subsidized, if at all, at the same level that they have been. And I know there's a kind of a nuance when I listen to um, the pundits and the politicians talk about this um, on the various talk shows, um, that the Republicans are very careful to say we're trying to increase access, um, which is kind of like I, uh, somebody likened it to, I, I have access to buy a Tesla, I just can't afford one. Uh, it seems to me that in a way we're creating a similar kind of a situation here because um, if we if we give these tax credits and they aren't, uh, most people are saying they don't think they're going to be enough to cover the premium, and if we're not going to subsidize um, or or help people with their out-of-pocket costs, I now have access if I'm low income, but I really can't afford it. And and this this provision alone seems to me that it could end up uh, pushing a lot of people off the insurance rolls. Do, do you think that's correct? Well, you know, I, it, so it, I don't know. So I think that it's all about how you define a lot. I mean, I, Republicans have, have conveyed that, that they conveyed, I guess, last weekend, not this immediate past weekend, but the weekend before last, which I guess would have been the, the 24th to the 26th. Many of the Republican governors from across the country were in town. And even you've seen in news reports, but also I've heard from kind of secondhand conversations that the messaging to that group is that it is likely that the Republican plan will cover fewer people. So I think that certainly fewer people, um, Republicans are are prepared for that. Um, and I think it's it's you know it, you know again we don't know and we won't know until we see it. But I think certainly what you're saying is true that it's likely there will be there will be fewer people that are covered. What that looks like is. It's hard to tell. The other comment I will make that, that to kind of your access point um, is the, um, and again, this all depends on on where you where you sit, right? Um, but as to whether you think this is a is a good thing or a bad thing, I think that most people think it's a bad thing, but certainly some think it's a good thing. 
Um, but is, is the benefit plan design and a lot of the restrictions around that that were included in the Affordable Care Act are likely to change. Uh, and so the other, the other scenario that you could have is that it's to kind of, you know, um, is you could have people that are basically, they're not able to purchase the same robustness of coverage or they can't afford it um, as they were, you know, for the ACA. So again, there, there are some folks that would say that's a good thing. You have people that are quote unquote over-purchasing because of the essential health benefits and the requirements they don't need. You know, the 28-year-old doesn't need that. Uh, there are a lot of people that say that's not true, you know, that you need to have a minimum standard of requirements. So that's another thing, not taking a pro or con position, but add, kind of add, layering on to your access question. I think that's something else you're likely to see is, you know, plan structure, plan design. Some of that may happen legislatively. I think a lot of that's going to happen through the regulatory process. Well, yeah, very interesting. So I want to switch gears in because you had uh, four major um, changes that, that you uh, talked about earlier. And the next one was the changes to Medicaid. So a lot of the expansion of coverage that we saw with the ACA was from the states that chose to um, expand Medicaid. And they did it, as you pointed out, with a pretty generous uh, federal match, which is going to go away. And as we switch from um, the expansion with the federal match to a per capita or block grant approach, um, aren't we going to end up seeing states that either can't afford any longer to maintain the Medicaid expansion or will just choose not to um, because they didn't really want to have the Medicaid in the first place? And, and, and it seems to me that um, that this particular piece, the changes to Medicaid, which brought so many people into insurance roles, could, uh, could if it's reversed, could end up um, really uh, creating, you know, we could just go back to, you know, the large number of uninsured individuals that we had in the past. Uh, so, no question. And I think that, um, so a couple of points that I'll, I'll make on the expansion side. And so the first is, Clearly, if you move to a per capita allotment or a block grant scenario, I think that um, there there are there are you know pros and cons. But the primary con, which some might argue when you're talking about healthcare and financing healthcare, is the biggest con, is that there will be less money, federal money that that is going to be available to the states, um, and states are going to have to come up with a larger share of money at the state level to continue to provide the same amount of coverage as you reference. In your remarks, that very few states will be able to come up or will want to come up with that kind of money, right? Um, so, so that's that's the the first comment I would make about either the per capita allotment or the block grant world. Um, the one thing that I, I would say, and this is you know, um, this is something that it has um, I think has been since the Affordable Care Act has was passed, one of the kind of the um, fundamental tenets of the Republican argument against the ACA and against the Medicaid expansion is that the ACA made Medicaid an almost kind of um, open-ended entitlement, which was not the intent of the program. So I don't think that it's a surprise that we're seeing per capita caps and block grants. Uh, that should be a surprise to nobody that's followed the process for the last six years. Republicans have been arguing for this and for some kind of visibility and some cap on the federal amount of dollar, federal dollars that are spent um, on the Medicaid program. But I do think, um, 
I do think that you're kind of the, the statement you made that it's likely that that you know coverage is going to drop is true. Again, this is I think Republicans are are messaging that or preparing to message that that that's likely to happen. The other thing that I think is important about Medicaid to note is I do think you'll see with a new administration, uh, with the leadership at CMS and the, and the leadership at, at um, the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services, is that you will see more flexibility to states. Um, again, I think it all depends on what's, what, what different states want to do with that. Uh, but I do think you will see enhanced flexibility through waivers to create different types of, of programs. Um, so maybe that will be good in some situations. I mean, I, I'm saying things that probably most of your, your listeners are aware of, but, but you know, Seema Burma, who's the new CMS administrator, is from Indiana. She, Indiana is a Republican-controlled state that chose to expand. She designed that program. Uh, so it's also possible that, that we end up with, uh, and again, this is just you know, complete speculation, but, but who knows? You could also end up with hybrid worlds where maybe per capita caps or block grants don't happen or don't happen immediately, but there's, at least in the short term, uh, there's the ability for some states that haven't expanded to expand under more kind of flexible types of arrangements. And then we'll see where, what happens um, down the road with per capita caps and block grants. I mean, one of the things that's important to note about the per capita caps and block grants is at least in none of the drafts that have been released so far, uh, or in the 2015 reconciliation bill, um, there were there were kind of the implementation date for those was kind of in the future. So essentially, what you had is you know we're going to repeal and replace with per capita caps and block grants, but that won't be effective until two years or three years down the road. So there's also a scenario where if you do that, then you get a lot of states that expand in that two or three year gap because CMS is just to use my words, quote unquote, willing to cut deals, then who knows? I mean, it's a very fluid situation as you think about how all this can play out. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it, it, there's, so, there's so many unknowns. Um, and one of them, you didn't, you didn't actually men- mention, but since we're going to talk about uh, kind of innovation, and it, it seems that both the Republicans and the Democrats are um, really like what's happened with the CMMI, the Innovation Center that's you know, the Federal Innovation Center, and that their Republicans are proposing um, state innovation uh, grants as well. Um, And you mentioned when you talked about those um, high-risk pools. So what we know about high-risk pools to date is, by and large, they haven't worked. Um, They end up costing a lot more money than states have been willing to put into them. And um, so they end up not covering very many people. And I, and I have to wonder, um, it, it, one of the reviews of the draft that I read today said that there was no mention of retaining um, the uh, pre-existing condition uh, regulation that was a part of uh, the ACA. Is it really a better way to take all those super, super expensive people and put them into one very expensive pool? Or take those super expensive people as they tried to do with the ACA, although there was so much um, so much uh, heat about the individual mandate, but the idea was to put everybody in a big pool so you have the sick people and the well people and, and, and there's cross-subsidization. So um, how do you think high-risk pools could be um, changed in a way that would make them, I don't know, less uh, financially inviable is what they seem like to me. 
You know, it's it's a great question, and, and just to be completely frank, I, I don't know that I have the background to answer that. I, I, I haven't spent a lot of time in the high-risk school um, space. I mean, you know, Republicans are convinced that they can work. I think that's based on, uh, you know, a small, I mean, you referenced that, that they haven't worked, and that's absolutely true. There are a small number of states that they arguably worked um, okay prior to the Affordable Care Act, so I think that the theory behind it is that you could look at some of those places where maybe they were they were working okay, again, not great, but okay, and then make some tweaks and have a, a robust system. But uh, you know, but I think time will tell whether that proves to be something that actually works or doesn't work. I, I don't know. I'm not a. I don't have the depth. I think to go any deeper than that on the high risk pools. But um, but I, I think that um, I think we're going to see over the next few years because I do think that will be included um, in in the legislation. Well, so we're going to do a grand experiment. There's one thing that, that I didn't see showing up that President Trump has said on multiple occasions, which is um, we need to do something about pharma prices, which are now, you know, 18% of the total spend. And particularly now that in the field of cancer, but also other kinds of chronic illnesses, there's these new um, very effective um, but very expensive drugs that are coming down the pike. So President Trump has said, we need to negotiate drug prices. Uh, I haven't seen that in, in, in any of the bills. Do you think, do you think that that's going to show up? And, and, and if it did, how, how would we negotiate drug prices in our system, which is so fractured with, I mean, if you look at, at, at the people who have their hands on pharmacy prices, there's the drug manufacturers, there's the health plans, there's, there's the, pharmacy benefit management companies, there's the employers, you know, I mean, who, who, who actually would do the negotiating? What entity do we have that could do that kind of negotiating? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that, as you referenced, from the administration, um, and even from, from uh, some in Congress, actually of both parties uh, in Congress. Uh, but I have no clue functionally how that would work. Uh, but starting from the top, there's no question that um, that pharmaceutical prices are a, a or the increase of the kind of the increases in pharmaceutical prices are a major issue uh, across the country for consumers. They're a major issue. Most of my work is with large integrated health systems. Uh, rising pharmaceutical costs have been a major, major concern for those entities over the last few years. Um, you know, there when everybody talks about drug prices, it's it, um, what I've come to realize is that there's it, it means something different to um, to everyone you know if you're the consumer it means you know you're paying more you know out of pocket or maybe your your premiums are going up on your plan because because drug costs are rising uh, if you're a provider it could be things that are going on in the specialty space you know very expensive drugs uh, it, or, or if you're a payer I should say it could be things that are going on in the specialty space very expensive drugs that you're having to pay for if you're a provider it could be right raises that are going on in the generic space so these are not necessarily price increases that you can pass through uh, to insurance carriers or health plans. These are things that show up in your DRGs and your payments. So when the price goes up 50 or 100%, you have to eat that cost. Um, so rising prices, it means something different to everyone, but it's no question across the board, it's a major issue. One of my colleagues has done some uh, some consumer research on this. And if you talk to to consumers, you do kind of traditional polling or market research. I mean. Almost 90% of Americans believe that something needs that, that drug prices are too high and something needs to be done. So I think what you're seeing now is is a response to that from politicians of both parties, including the president. 
Um, when it comes to negotiating drug prices, I, personally, and I could be wrong about this, but uh, but personally, I think that's a big lift. I think what you may be more likely to see, at least in the short term, what I'll refer to as kind of baby steps in that direction are things like value-based pricing. So you've even seen some of the pharmaceutical companies um, basically uh, come out publicly and say they would be agreeable to some type of value-based pricing arrangement. Now, the devil's in the details as it relates to what does that look like, but conceptually, a value-based pricing arrangement would, basic, would say that if, if this drug is not um, resulting in the commensurate type of patient improvements, uh, you know, in, in you know, enhanced recovery times and better outcomes, then, oh, then the price would be lowered over time, not raised. And again, that's I'm speaking at the, at the highest levels. Obviously, it's much more technical than that. Um, but, but so I think that a lot of those what I'll call smaller steps are much more likely than anything that would be kind of a big jump to negotiating drug prices because. As you reference how how that would even happen, what entity would do it? Would CMS do it? Would some other newly formed entity do it? How would that even work? All of those questions are out there, and I, there are no good answers for those, at least at least not now. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real challenge. I was recently at a meeting where uh, it was employers talking about these expensive drugs, and 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 like you say, it's it's kind of like the blind man and the elephant. Everybody has a different view of of what it means to have the high drug prices. And, um, and and it was fascinating to hear to to hear this this discussion of what exactly it is that we should that we should do. People came out interestingly opposed to what they called couponing, which is one way of handling these really expensive drugs. Is to say, um, you know, we've just raised the price of of nalox auto injectable naloxone. That's a drug to reverse uh, opioid overdoses, which are a huge problem in this country, and they and they and it's more than a fifty or hundred percent. It's you know it's like a these things are like five thousand percent increases that they have. So one way of handling it is to say, well, I'll just make it free for the consumers. You, I, in other words, you won't have to pay whatever your out of pocket is. But then they pass on that huge price to to the health plans, and. Um, and even with all of these experts around the table at this meeting that I was at, people couldn't come to a consensus of what we need to do with drugs. But one person pointed out that that drug companies actually need to make all their profit off their U.S. market because their other markets are negotiating drug prices with them. No question. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there was, and I'm trying to remember uh, where I read this, but there was an article, it may have been in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times over the last few weeks, talking about how um, other countries essentially piggyback on the research and development and the the kind of the early stage work that goes on in this country. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's clear there's not an easy answer. Um, there's no easy answer to the problem. The other piece we haven't even mentioned is the PBM space, which a lot of folks believe is, is one of the more egregious um, violators in, in the rise of drug pricing and, and is, you know, is, is certainly something that needs substantial reform. So they're, they're kind of a host of quote-unquote villains. They're a host of solutions and kind of corralling those into to things that will happen, I think will be difficult, particularly as it relates to something large like negotiating drug prices. I do think, though, just because of kind of the public outcry to this, um, you know, something, even if it's very, very superficial, I think something you know, is likely to happen over the next few years. Again, it may be superficial, it may not really move the needle, or it may be more substantial. 
But I think that something is likely to happen because it, it, it's one of these issues that in the mind of the public, something needs to be done about it. And it's a very, very strong feeling um, as it relates to that. Right. Um, so let's talk about this last uh, area that you brought up, which was um, that the taxes and the mandates will undoubtedly be repealed. And the um, latest version of the draft that I just read about online said that indeed that was the case, but the one uh, tax that they didn't repeal, which, or in, at least in, in the speculation about the draft, that they weren't repealing was the Cadillac tax, which is um, the tax that employers get for giving, you know, very generous benefits to their employees. I, I was kind of surprised about that. I, I would have thought that would be something um, that the that the Republicans wouldn't want to have in their bill. Am I looking at that the wrong way? Well, I think there are two. I don't think you're looking at it the wrong way, Pat. I think there are two. There are a couple of things. The first one is the the other thing um, that I know has been, um, and some of this is you know you've seen publicly in in um, has been you know written on in, in news articles over the last few days, is is putting actually also a cap on the deductibility of employer-sponsored health care. Uh, I think there are a couple of things that are going on with that. Um, I think the first and probably the, the primary uh, you know thing that's driving that is the the cost to actually repeal and replace. I mean we haven't walked through the mechanics of it, but but the repeal is actually what's referred to as a budget reconciliation bill, um, which which I think is is more accurate to say it's a defunding. So a budget reconciliation won't necessarily take the individual mandate off the books. What a, a budget reconciliation will do is it will change the penalty for the individual mandate to zero. So what you've done is you've had an effective repeal, but it's really more of a, of a defunding because of the, the, the process pieces of, of reconciliation, which I won't go into the weeds on, um, on that. Um, but, but in the course of doing this, all of this has to go through the, the you know, kind of the typical process of, of having a score from the Congressional Budget Office of how much does this bill cost. And um, by, by having, uh, whether it be the Cadillac tax or whether it be putting a cap on, on the amount of deductibility for employer-sponsored health benefits, all of that will help Republicans from a scoring perspective. So essentially what I'm saying is that by doing things like that, it means this bill will add less to the deficit by keeping that in. So I think there's a scoring component associated with it. I also think there's, um, and this can't be discounted, there's also a, um, a conceptual, um, and not to speak, you know, for the Republican Party as, as a whole, because certainly uh, if we've learned anything over the last few years, the Republican Party is, has many different factions that believe different things. But I do think there's kind of an ideological piece to this, that, um, that having unlimited deductibility for, uh, for health insurance benefits is bad policy. So I think there's a there's kind of a pure policy piece to it, but I think there's also just a practical piece, which is by leaving, you know, whether it be leaving the Cadillac tax or or including a cap on the exclusion for deductibility for for the amount of employer-sponsored health care, you're also helping the, the ultimate score and you know the amount of uh, the amount of money this bill costs or the amount that it adds to the deficit. So well, it's very interesting, you know, talking about the scoring because it's my understanding is, is as we are talking now, the draft bill is being scored and various scenarios are being tried out. So as we've said all through this wonderful conversation, is we we won't know what it is until we actually see what it is. 
but I think one of the things that we can say, Nathan, um, and I'm sure you're going to agree with this, is something that President Trump said, um, and that is healthcare is really complicated. It is very, very, very complicated. I mean, I, you know, it, it's one of the things that um, that I think from the outside it looks simple, but once you get inside to it, I mean, it's not just everything that we've talked about today, but it's you know, physician compensation is paid through Medicare Part B, hospital is Medicare Part A, you've got Medicare Part D uh, for drug benefits, Part C for Medicare Advantage. I mean, all of these things moving together, even within just Medicare, and that doesn't even touch Medicaid, that doesn't touch what's going on in the individual market and things we've talked about, refundable tax credits. Very, very complicated to align all the moving pieces in a way where, you know, people receive coverage and people receive the right kind of coverage, which I think at the end of the day, I mean, certainly Democrats and Republicans have different perspectives about how healthcare should be financed in this country. Um, and there's, there's no question that that is the case. Um, but also at the end of the day, they both think that the way they're doing it will result in a, in a better market over time. I mean, you know, if Republicans truly didn't care about helping people to some degree get insurance, why would they have individual tax credits? They wouldn't have that if they didn't care to some degree about making sure people have coverage and they can afford and can afford that coverage, at least relatively speaking. So what you see is, is kind of an ideological difference about how much should be spent on healthcare and what's the right way to finance it. Uh, and I think that when you get into those types of discussions, it becomes very, very complicated to find uh, a solution that everybody agrees on. Yeah, well, that's for sure. So we're almost out of time, but I thought I would close by asking you one question, and you could give me a really simple answer, yes or no. Um, sure. Do you think we're actually going to see a bill signed into law on health care this year? Uh, well, simple answer, yes. Um, the more the next <laughs> the more extended answer would be, um, I'm not as confident that it will, it will be a comprehensive bill. I think something small that certainly repeals and touches parts of the Affordable Care Act, yes. Um, something that's bigger, maybe something that's even as big as what we've discussed today, I am not as confident. I'm certainly not saying it won't happen, but I'm not near as confident uh, that something large will happen. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, for joining me today and for this incredible conversation. And uh, I guess we'll see what's going to happen. And it sounds like we're going to see something really soon. So thank you very much, Nathan. No, thank you, Pat. And yeah, like I said, I think the next few weeks will be very, very interesting. So thanks again for having me. Indeed.